Well, my first experience with fasting was a doozy. Um, I don't know if you've ever fasted before, and don't worry, I know what some of you are thinking, Michael, if you talk about it, you'll lose your reward. I've already lost a reward for this, have no fear. So my first experience with fasting was my freshman year at Michigan State University, and uh, I was a part of a campus ministry, and we would put on, we called them outreach events, but you, you gotta go back in time into the late 90s because the experience and culture of a college campus is night and day different from what it is today. So we would put on these outreach events. They'd be musically driven. There'd be a bunch of stuff. And, and honestly, we could get two, three, four, five hundred high or college students to come to these events. They were incredibly successful, and uh, a large number of those students would not be Christians. We wanted to make sure um, that every single um, student at Michigan State University uh, had an opportunity to hear hear the gospel. The burden for the lost was so heavy on us. And so um, I, I lived on a floor with um, a handful of juniors and seniors. They were actually really godly men. And um, so they decided they were gonna have a fast for the floor, um, for everybody on the floor who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And it was gonna be a two-day, 48-hour fast. And leading up to the fast, um, we would be praying um, in this guy, uh, his name is Cameron Zorgdragger, awesome name. Uh, we'd be praying in Cameron Zorgdragger's room every night at 11 o'clock. And then what would happen during the two-day fast, we would pray regularly, we would substitute meals. It was a total fast. Um, the only thing that we could have was water in these two days. So they asked me, Michael, do you wanna be a part of the fast with us? And of course, I was like, I want these guys to like me, I want them to think I'm spiritual, I want them to think I'm amazing and that I'm godly and all this other stuff. And I happened to be playing guitar at this outreach event, so I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll join the fast. Um, meanwhile, I, I had no idea. I mean, I, I was a moron. So um, good intentions maybe somewhere deep down inside, but uh, it just wasn't done well. So. About, I don't know, 24 hours into the fast, it started at 11 p.m., it was gonna end at 11 p.m. two days later, um, I was miserable. Like, if you saw me, I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever done. Michael, what's wrong with you? I'm fasting, and it is terrible, right? I mean, there was nothing good, redeeming, or biblical about anything I did in the fast. And so we would meet regularly in Cameron's room throughout those two days to pray. And uh, the Lord was doing some work in me, aligning me, but let's just say I, I missed the boat on the whole thing. Well, at 10.15 p.m., uh, 45 minutes before the fast was going to break, uh, we had a novel idea. Let's all order personal large pizzas with sausage and pepperoni that are going to arrive right at 11 o'clock so that when we broke our fast, we could gorge ourselves and feast uh, on the glories of college pizza. So uh, at 10.55, the pizza arrives, and let me tell you, that was the longest five minutes of my life. And I'm like, I will not break this fast until my watch turns to 11 p.m. on the dot. So I sat there and I waited. And let me tell you, the moment that clock hit 11, 11 p.m., I gorged. I mean, the pizza was done in under five minutes. Like, if you eat with me, I grew up with three older brothers. You don't eat it, you starve. So I've learned to eat fast. I consumed this whole pizza. And for about three or four minutes, I was in high heaven. And then came the longest night of my life. <laughs> It was miserable. I mean, I was in so much pain for two days. And you could write a book on here's what not to do in fasting. And I could have like, that book could have been written after my life. Um, I have a hunch that most of you have not been in too many sermons on the subject of fasting. And even, if, even as I say the word, all these questions start going through your brain. If I don't answer them, put them on, the, uh, on a connect slip and turn them in. Talk about them in your community groups. But one of my, one of my desires to, to do today is to help you think and to live biblically on this 
issue, okay? I want to make a personal confession to you on the front end. My entire life, since I was like seven years old, I have struggled with weight. I gain weight, I lose weight, I gain weight, I lose weight. And uh, for most Americans, fasting, it's really, really, really hard for people to conceive of fasting and not connect it somehow, maybe even some way in the deep recesses of our hearts and minds to this issue of losing weight. And uh, so there is, there is so much American baggage that we bring to spiritual practices, but especially, especially the issue of, of fasting. And uh, so turn with me in your Bibles. Matthew 6.16 is where we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, before we get there, I, I have to set up some context. So give me a few minutes to really get you prepared to get into what Jesus has to say. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is building a bridge. And you have to understand this because Christians read the Sermon on the Mount and we get really confused because sometimes it feels like the Sermon on the Mount is telling us that you're saved by doing good things and forgiving people and that it's like works-based salvation. It gets really, really sticky and a lot of Christians don't totally know what to do with this portion of scripture. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a bridge and it is a bridge between the Old Covenant or Old Testament and a New Covenant or New Testament. Uh, and so what Jesus is doing on the one hand in, in the Sermon on the Mount is he's, he is interpreting and applying the Old Covenant law. And Jesus is going to obey and to fulfill filled this law perfectly. And the whole point of the law was to prepare for Jesus. And so once Jesus dies on the cross, rise again, raise, is raised again from the dead, um, this is the end of the old covenant as we know it. It's sort of like a disposable razor. It's really good. It's really valuable. It serves a purpose. But when the purpose is fulfilled, it is set aside. And that's what the New Testament says about the old covenant. It has been set aside and there's a new covenant coming. So on the one hand, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're reading Jesus and interpreting and applying the old covenant, and he's going to tell everybody, basically, I'm going to fulfill this thing perfectly. At the same time, he is not just fulfilling and setting aside an old covenant, he is inaugurating teaching for a new covenant or a New Testament people of God. And so there are going to be things that he talks about, uh, and they are both Old Testament practices and New Testament practices. But what Jesus is trying to do is build this bridge for us, okay? And so there are three really distinctive practices that the Old Covenant, Old Testament Jews practice. You gotta get your head around these. And what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna show them how to do it, and then he's gonna build a bridge, and he's gonna say basically this. Um, these three practices are still practices that followers of Christ would do. And here are the three practices. Number one, giving to the poor. Number two, private prayer. And number three, personal fasting. In fact, for the Jews, what we see all throughout um, extra biblical Jewish literature is that um, these were the three most important spiritual practices any follower of God could participate in. Okay? Um, especially in a world where so many people were illiterate, um, these were things anybody could do. Um, and so these were considered the top three personal spiritual disciplines. And what Jesus is doing by putting them in the Sermon on the Mount is he's showing us what the law required. He's going to personally fulfill these. And then what he's going to do is build a bridge for us and basically say, um, these are still central passages or practices, personal disciplines that the people of God do. So we get to the New Testament. We see that actually this issue of fasting, um, it continues to come up. So you have Acts 13, 2. says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Acts 13, 3, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them. Paul and Barnabas sent them off, Acts 14. The elders uh, appointed new leaders with prayer and fasting. Uh, even you get to the point where the 
early writings after Scripture, so let's, let's just be clear for some of you who don't know, the last book of the New Testament written is the book of, John, the book of Revelation, written by John. Uh, it was written about 90 AD. Um, sometime, likely before 100 AD, other Christian writings were written. They're not Scripture, but they were written right along the same time. The earliest one we have is called the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, and it is a word that literally means the teaching. And the Didache is this really amazing late first century writing that talks about the practices and the disciplines and the rhythms of the early church after the apostles. Amazing. And the Didache even writes about fasting regularly. Uh, Here's what it says on fasting and baptism. Before the baptism, this is not scripture, this is the Didache, late, late, late first century. Before the baptism, moreover, the one who baptizes and the one being baptized must fast and any others who can. And you must tell the one being baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand. Your fasts must not be identical with those of the hypocrites. We, we go throughout the first three, four centuries of the early Christian church, fasting was standard. If you called yourself a follower of Jesus, you gave to the poor, you prayed personally and privately, and you fasted personally and privately on a regular basis. Isn't that interesting? Now, we get to the 21st American church, 21st century American church. Is there a pretty big difference in terms of the personal disciplines that are expected of us? Absolutely. So since the Sermon on the Mount is deeply personal, let me just ask you some personal questions to prepare your heart. Do I regularly and secretly give to those in need so that money does not control me? That was a sermon two weeks ago. Question number two, do I regularly and secretly pray to my Father in heaven so that I live in dependence Upon him. Here's question number three. Do I regularly and secretly fast to grow my hunger for God? Now, here's what, here's what I'm going to, I get it. You got a billion questions. And we're going to go after these to the best of our ability. So be patient and we'll get there. I want to read to you something someone wrote that I found really helpful. The world is seeking to fill up our soul with toys and to satisfy our heart with pleasures. It is relentless and it is deceptive. And we must all confess we are not just vulnerable, but we are guilty of worldly indulgence. What discipline has God instituted to detox our souls and allow God to again be the one who fills up our soul and satisfies our heart? And the answer is fasting. So let's define the term. Fasting is abstaining from something, say this with me just so we get in our brains, essential, to draw near to God and be filled by him. Fasting is abstaining from something essential, usually 99.9% of the time food, to draw near to God and be filled by him. All fasting, all fasting has one activity always connected to it, and that activity is prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without praying. So if there will be a fast, it must be accompanied with real, personal prayer to God. So why on earth 
with someone fast, right? Uh, in the book of Luke, uh, chapter two, we have a, a, a prophetess. Her name is Anna. She is old and she is widowed and she knows that the Messiah is about to be born. And so she is fasting and praying in the temple every single day because she is waiting with uh, sincere anticipation for the coming birth of the Messiah. Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, gets this terrifying vision. I mean, just rocked his world. And he needed to know what this vision meant. So Daniel got on his face and he prayed and he fasted and he fasted until the Lord gave him an answer. Second Samuel 12, 16, David um, had uh, an illegitimate child through Bathsheba and the child was sick and inevitably going to die. And David fasted and prayed all night long, pleading with God to save the life of the child. And God said, no, but that's when he fasted. Acts 13, the church in Antioch fasted before the elders sent out Paul and Barnabas on this very dangerous and risky ministry journey. Uh, and so we find actually in the New Testament is often um, fasting is connected to the ministry of the pastors or elders in the church. Isn't that an interesting, interesting thing? So, so why would somebody actually fast? We see a bunch of reasons throughout scripture, uh, but let me give you two big categories. Number one, people would fast as a response. Fasting is a response to something God has done, something God is about to do, or something you need God to do. Uh, fasting is a response to God. Uh, but number two, fasting is a disciplined pursuit. So if you look at the, pers- the, the response is as life happens, as desperation happens, as you, as you really need the Lord to desperately move in your life, um, those are going to be moments where you say, we, I just need to go before the Lord. I need to fast. But then there's going to be this other category, which is disciplined pursuit. And this is where somehow into the rhythm of your life, this becomes normal. Okay? Now, I know the questions you're already asking. How rhythmed, how normaled, right? Uh, how frequently do I actually do this? I know those aren't actually words, don't worry. Uh, Matthew chapter nine, verse 14 and 15. This is a really interesting passage, but should kind of awaken us to, to uh, fasting a bit. Here's what happens. Then the disciples of John, they came to Jesus saying, um, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Like this feels really weird to us, Jesus. Uh, and Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. And as long as Jesus was bodily present with the disciples, fasting was done. There was no fasting. The fullness, the fullness of God dwelt in their presence. They had all their questions answered. Anything they needed, they could go to Jesus and say, why? They didn't need to fast. It was a celebration. Jesus was with them. But the moment Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, then the people of God would begin this practice again. Fasting is found all throughout the scriptures. And it is currently practiced in almost every single expression of Christendom globally now, except for one place. Anywhere where the church is wealthy, and satisfied, fasting rarely exists. You find churches that are impoverished, broken, and in desperate need, you will find Christians who have not neglected the practice of fasting. But you show me a church that's fat and happy and healthy and easy, and I will show you a church that will rarely fast. And I'm gonna say, as we did study for this, um, this was really, really hard for me because I realized Guilty as charged, for sure. 
that the indulgences and the joys and the pleasures and the ease of being a Christian in America reduces my perception of the desperation that I and we have for God. It doesn't matter how easy it is. The only way someone gets saved is through the power of God. And we have never needed his power more than we do now. And so I got to stand as guilty as saying, wow, like this is really... That is convicting. Now, we're going to get some more details. What are some different kinds of fasts? Really? Let's break it down. There's two ways of thinking through fasting. Um, there are partial fasts, which basically means you're not um, abstaining from all foods. Uh, you'd be abstaining maybe from uh, fruits and vegetables, something that they have a partial fast in Scripture where um, you would have only bread and water. Um, you're going to find that there are not hard and fast rules. For those of you who love rules, when it comes to fasting, prayer, giving, especially giving to the poor and giving to the church, like there aren't percentages, right? Jesus doesn't say, say, well, you need to pray three times a day and you need to be for this long. Like, he doesn't do that, right? And it's really frustrating for legalists because they want rules. So number one is partial fast. Number two is an absolute fast. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness. And uh, you just need to know that, that there is no prescription for fasting. Some of you might do a partial fast. Some of you might do an absolute fast. One does not make you better than the other. There are going to be restrictions on some of you that don't actually permit you to do certain kinds of fasts. Don't get lost in the how, the when, the why. Get really, really concerned with whether or not this is a part of your life. Now, I do have one suggestion before we get into the text. If you have a high school student, especially uh, junior high, high school, boy or girl, um, I would typically not encourage fasting. The connection between body image, weight loss, and fasting, it, it feels almost impossible to separate these. There are better ways to train up kids. Um, you got to make sure that if that's something you introduce into your family as a family discipline, perhaps, you got to be very cautious and careful to not facilitate um, really wrong, wrong motives. If I, as a 37-year-old male in America, have a hard enough time separating them, how much more a 16-year-old female or male? All right, point number one in your notes. My temptation in fasting. Verse 16, Jesus says, and when you fast, what's the assumption? You're going to be fasting. So why would the Jews fast? The Jews under law were prescribed, commanded to fast only one time per year. That's it. That's the law. That's the rule. It's the regulation. It was Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. It was a sacred day. And the fasting was an act of preparation. Okay? But that's it. There is no more mandated fasting in the Old Testament by law. Now, in the Old Testament, would kings and prophets uh, call on the people of God to fast and pray? Yes, absolutely. Okay? Uh, here's a question for you to work through in your community groups. If the elders of Village Church call a fast, is it sinful for you to ignore them and or not do it? Fight through that one. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> so here's what happened by the first century, right? Because there's law, and then there's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did with the law over thousands of years by the time the first century hit. So by the time the first century came, uh, Jews were typically expected to fast two times a week. And if you didn't fast two times a week, you, you weren't that spiritual, okay? You had a serious issue with you and God. And isn't it interesting? Uh, it's so easy for a spiritual leader to put extra biblical mandates on people, force them to submit to them, and, and we gotta be really careful about the extra biblical mandates. So now in this whole culture is an expectation for bi-weekly, twice a week, fasting, of which God could care less whether or not they do it twice a week or once a month or once a year. If God really cared that desperately, he would have mandated them to fast more than once a year. But you can see how this got weird. Uh, look at verse 16 as it goes on. He says this. This is epically funny to me. Do not look gloomy 
like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, <laughs> that their fasting may be seen by others. So gloomy literally means sullen face. Hey man, what, what's, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. I'm fasting. Don't worry, I'm fine. I said, everything's going to be fine. Oh, you know, like, I've said this to you guys handfuls of time over the last three weeks. Shut your mouth, right? Just don't say it. Like, there are personal, private disciplines that we have with God, and there's this theme that comes up. Don't tell anybody. And the moment you tell somebody, you lose your rewards. So just stop it, right? Just do it. And so, like, there's this real thing. So the sullen face. And then the word disfigure uh, literally means to render invisible or to take your normal face and to make it as not being able to be seen. Here's what they would do to render themselves invisible. They would get ash and dirt before they went out of the house, right? They know they're going to go onto the street corner. They're going to pray there, there three times a day, uh, whatever. And, 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 and so they take ash and dirt, and they put it on their faces, and they make themselves look tired and gloomy and, oh, life is so hard. Then they get out and they go and they pray publicly out loud with sullen faces. Oh Lord, this is so hard. I mean, doesn't that not sound so dumb? I mean, okay, so cultural blind spots. Let's talk about it, okay? There are things we don't see that are objectively ridiculous and we live in this world and so it's just no doubt. But if someone from a different culture came in, they'd be like, um, I'm sorry, why do you do that? That's really weird, right? And we look back and regularly the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they have these practices that are so duplicitous and manipulative and it's like, guys, how did you not see how ridiculous it is? Like who gets up and actually takes real dust and dirt, puts it on their face to give themselves the illusion that they're suffering more through fasting. It's so hard. And here's what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So here's an idea. Don't do any of that. Now, I want to I give you some modern temptations, okay? Number one, complaining. Oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, this is so hard. Shut your mouth, right? Shh, be quiet. You don't need to say anything at all. Number two, fasting to lose weight. These have never not once, been connected in God's mind. Like there's never a time when God's gonna say, seek my face through fasting. And in case I'm not motivation enough, you could lose some weight in the process, so it's gonna be fine, right? <laughs> That's not what he does, okay? So they're not connected. So this is a challenge for us. We gotta separate them. If you wanna fast for weight loss and all that stuff, and some of you will say, I'm just gonna be efficient. I'm gonna do it for both. I'm not gonna judge you at all. I'm just saying watch out because in God's mind, the two aren't connected. Now number three, and this is what I think culturally is so relevant, Confusing fasting with sacrifice and repentance. So let me just, let's play a little game. Is this really a fast? Is my fast something sinful that needs repentance? Uh, I'm gonna stop smoking pot for, for Lent, right? Um, hey, babe, let's stop sleeping together uh, for the next 40 days. Like, like, okay, that's not fasting. That is something you need to repent of. I've, he I've heard, this is my favorite, I'm gonna stop cussing for like the all of Lent for like 40 days. It's gonna be really, really hard. That's not fasting, do you see, okay? Remember we had the word essential? I'm gonna explain this in a moment, but you gotta make a distinction, okay? Is it something that needs repentance? Number two, is this something neutral or good that can be sacrificed? For example, oh man, for Lent, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop playing video games, right? Here's an idea, just stop in general. How about that? Come on, that was a good one, no, okay. I'm not gonna watch TV for all of Lent. I'm gonna give up caffeine for Lent. I'm, here's what I wanna make a distinction with you. In scripture, 
That is not fasting. That is sacrifice. And sacrifice is good. Should you give up good things for God? The answer is sometimes, yes, that's great. I applaud you. Here's the deal. Fasting in scripture is abstaining from something essential, like food. Something essential that can be temporarily abstained. So let's remind ourselves of the definition. Fasting is abstaining from something essential, usually food, to draw near to God and to be filled by him. I can hear your questions and we're going to get to him. So just, just be patient. Number two in your notes. Jesus' secret to fasting. Verse 17. But, what does he say again? When you fast. So this is like normal. Anoint your head and wash your face. All right, a couple questions. Number one, when should I fast? I'll give you two words. Regularly as a discipline. And number two is out of desperation. When you need God to move or to come through for you or to answer a question, like that's when you fast, regularly and as a discipline. Question number two, when I fast, what should I fast? Fast from things that are essential. In the scriptures, there are only two things that seem to be clearly articulated as something worthy of fasting. Now, I'm gonna explain this and you're gonna be like, wait a minute, right? So here's the first one, food, substituted with prayer, and here's the second one, sex substituted with prayer. Now, here's the question that you should be asking. Okay, Michael, how is sex essential? I'm gonna tell you the answer. It's not essential for living, right? <laughs> You've done fine with that, it'll be fine. It is essential to the institution of marriage. The only thing that makes people who live together cohabitate together and married people different is the sexual relationship. That is it, that is the fundamental difference. It is the covenant inaugurator and the covenant sustainer. Okay, and so to the institution of marriage, that is an essential act. And you're like thinking, probably Michael, prove that to me in the Bible. That's weird. Okay, good. First Corinthians seven five. It's gonna be up on the screen. Do not deprive one another. He's talking about the sexual relationship, except perhaps by agreement. Now, can you can you tell your spouse we're gonna be fasting from prayer for a month, right? You got to agree. And here's the deal: for a limited amount of time, that you may what devote yourselves to prayer. You're abstaining from something essential to the institution. You're substituting it with prayer. You're doing it temporarily. But then it says, then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. And so we get to really two examples that are given in scripture. But let's be honest, there's never once, other than this passage, where sexuality is connected to fasting. This is it. 99.9% .9 of all references to fasting in scripture are necessarily connected to food. Food is the primary way that we do it. Okay, Michael, uh, when I fast, how long should one fast? There's no, it's like giving. New Testament giving drives Christians crazy. Because we want a law, right? We want God to be like, tell me exactly what you want. And New Testament giving is, is, is uh, uh, built off of an Old Testament concept of a free will offering. And you know the whole point of a free will offering? It has nothing to do with that you have a free will. It has to do with you decide. That's it. And so some people might say, tell me 10%. Well, the Lord might want you to give 30. Well, tell me 10%. Well, the Lord might want you to give five. I, I don't know I'm not the Holy Spirit. Here's what I do know. You gotta go before the Lord and pray. Am I more godly if I give 30% than 5%? Not necessarily. Uh, godliness uh, actually would be probably best defined as doing what God says to do and being like Christ. So if God says five, that's godly. If God says 30, that's godly. If God says 90, that's godly. Godliness is doing what God wants you to do and being like Christ. 
So how long should I fast? I don't know. I, I can't give you a law. The moment I give you a law, we start to become a hypocrite, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a scribe. We start mandating things on you that Jesus never once mandates on his people. Number four, when I fast, how should I fast? Two words. With preparation, first, look at this. He says, uh, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. This is basic Jewish cleanliness. These are basic practices to make sure that you are putting on your best, if you will. Uh, he basically says this, all right, if you're, if, if you're ever gonna lie in your life, let it be here, right? Let it be where like, you feel really miserable inside because you're fasting. Um, clean yourself and go out and put a smile on your face because your personal fast has nothing to do with anyone else. It's no one's business but you and God. One of the things with uh, preparation, which I think is great, is to watch for the hanger experience. We've talked about hanger here, the combination of uh, hunger and anger when you get really hungry, right? So can I just take a minute, a minute and tell you something that I found to be just absolutely like spectacularly priceless? All right, so John Piper, uh, he does a lot of training on, on fasting. And he, here's what he says, fasting always reveals you. Uh, it always forces you to see what's really motivating you and driving you. So here, here's what he says. Um, when we are experiencing anger from fasting or from any kind of hunger, here's what he says. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to hunger, logically. Then we know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is actually within us. I was like, I can't justify anger anymore? Are you kidding me? Thanks for nothing, John Piper. Number one, with preparation. You anoint, you wash. Number two is in secret. You do, this is how you do it. You do it in a way, if it's personal, it's private, it's between you and the Lord, it's a moment of desperation. Now, is it okay to have your family come together or your church come together or a couple of friends or your community group and fast together? The answer is, of course, yes. And there's a difference between a communal fast and an individual fast. Jesus is talking about their personal disciplines of fasting in their life. Uh, Michael, what if my doctor says that I can't fast? Uh, here's the great thing. There's no rule to what you need to fast. Uh, in scripture, actually, you can see that Daniel left out delicacies and some other essentials. Uh, he had a whole range of stuff. You see that sometimes they just have bread and water. Um, think about it. Like, the goal is not to like ruin your life and make your life terrible. It's to give you a place when you get down before the Lord where this aching physical hunger inside of you reminds you that what your body is feeling, your soul needs for God. And so like that's what it's supposed to give you this moment where you are constantly reminded the way my body wants food, God, give me that spiritual hunger for you. Now, number three in your notes, the Father's reward for fasting. In verse 18, Jesus goes on and says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward for fasting? I wanna say it like this. The reward is that God gives our souls exactly what they want the most. Look at the words. To be seen by our Father, our Abba, our Heavenly Dad. To be rewarded by our Heavenly Dad. And implicit in this is to be affirmed by our Heavenly Father. Why did God the Father look at Jesus and say this? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Let me tell you why. Because the cry of every son or daughter's heart is to be seen, to be known, to be rewarded, affirmed by our fathers. It is powerful. 
So dad's taking note from God the Father. He's onto something. And Jesus is able to take these words and he doesn't have the jadedness of life that just pushes away the words. That pushes, oh, he doesn't mean it. Oh, if, you, if you really meant it, then you wouldn't have put me on this God-forsaken earth, right? He holds in the encouragement deep into his soul. Let me just make it even more um, clear for you. Uh, I've talked about my five-year-old son. One of the things I love about five-year-old boys, at least mine, is that he, he is unjaded by the darkness of this world. Like he has not had a huge life trauma. He's not bitter deep down inside. Like you just get pure boy, right? All the aggression, all the angst, whatever. When I look at this kid and I say to him, bro, man, I, I love you. He just, it's like, it brings over this deep satisfaction that I know life is going to have a way of jading out of him. Life is going to be so hard on this kid that over time it's going to be harder and harder for him to take these words and hold them deep down inside of his soul. I, um, uh, we have this funny little thing that we, I do with my kids and uh, I mean steal it if you want. That might be weird. But, so I go to my kids and I, and I say, oh, guess what? And there's two acceptable answers to this. The first one is chicken butt. Right? So guess what? Chicken butt. Guess why? Chicken thigh. Guess where? Chicken stare. Guess who? You get the point. So uh, the second one is, I love you. And they still get them all the time. I'm like, hey, guess what? They're like, what? I'm like, I love you. I'm like, I knew you were going to say that. Ugh. Right? But for my five-year-old, like unjaded by life, hey, bro, guess what? Like, I love you. I'm like, I love you. Yeah. And he just, oh, he just, you see this glee over his face, and it's so satisfying. Because what does this unjaded, pure little heart want? But he wants to be seen by his dad. He wants to be rewarded by his dad. He wants to be affirmed by his dad. He wants, the word in the Bible is commendation. He wants God, he wants his dad to look at him and applaud. And there's something deep down inside of us that whether or not you have been jaded by life, you want to hear these words when you die and stand before Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because this inner cry, this reward, the deepest reward is that God gives us himself and his love and his affirmation. And these are the things core to what we want. I want you to look at with me at Hebrews 11, verse one. Uh, it's talking about faith. And, and, and fasting requires faith. It is backwards. Like how does abstaining from food compel God or draw me closer to God. Like th these are just backwards things that we fast because we're a people of faith, not because it always makes sense. Here's what he says in Hebrews 11. 1. Now faith, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, their high five, their applause from God. I am so proud of you. You are so great. Like I am, you, dude, you are so strong. You know those things that sink into the soul of a five-year-old? This is one of the greatest rewards you will ever get from God is his commendation as your heavenly dad who speaks over your soul and your life with approval and favor and reward. Like that is one of the greatest blessings. But go to verse six and here's what the author of Hebrews says. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this is what, what Jesus is trying to get through. If you give in secret, pray in secret, and fast in secret, here's my promise. The heavenly father, your heavenly father, will reward you with that which your soul most longs. 
And we believe that when we pray to him, he does not abandon us, but he rewards those who seek him. And these rewards are meaningful and they are personal and they are worth pursuing. Some of these rewards are here and now and some of these rewards will be in heaven. And when we get there and we see those, they will be 100% worth it. The reward of fasting again to be seen by our Father rewarded by our Father, affirmed by our Father. If you want bonus awards, let me give you some more, okay? So in case like, oh no, knowing God, being affirmed by him, loved by him, et cetera, encouraged by him, isn't enough, right? Which let's be honest, sometimes it's not. There are more rewards. Number one, fasting moves us closer to God's will. Try it. Talk to anybody who fasts on a regular basis. Here's what they'll tell you. When I start, I have an agenda. And when I finish, my agenda seems to be pretty different. Because there's something about coming before God out of desperation or with your needs or your ideas or your wants. And then when the Holy Spirit and you are doing some work together, he starts to adjust your will and you no longer say, may my will be done, but your will be done. And one of the promises is that in the secret place, when you are with your heavenly father, he will reward you with his mind and his heart. This is one of his commitments. And so uh, number two though, uh, and this may be weird. You got to figure out how to put this in your theological categories. Um, fasting moves God to action quickly, more quickly than usual. Uh, fasting uniquely gets God's attention. Uh, there's something about it, and I, I would say that it requires such faith to sacrifice through fasting. It really does. It requires it. And when God sees faith, God is like, yes, commendation. Love that. There's something about when God's people faithfully, regularly do things that don't make sense to the world, that deprive themselves because we trust that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think when God sees the faith of a saint who prays and fasts regularly, he uniquely and quickly moves to reward them. I want to read Acts um, 13, 2. It says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, it's interesting, The text is organized in such a way to tell you this, that the Holy Spirit spoke because they were worshiping and fasting. Here's what he says. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the the work to which I have called them. They wanted to know, Lord, what do we do? What are we doing next? And so they prayed, they fasted, they worshiped. And as a response, God gave them absolute clarity about his mind, his heart, and the next steps. And this is one of the benefits of fasting that many of us have yet to know because we have yet to experience actual desperation where we need nothing but the mind and the heart and the will of God. Somebody said this once, God does not hear you better when you're not eating. (laughs) Isn't that funny? But he does promise to respond quickly and more clearly. Why? Fasting requires faith and God loves when his people act with faith. I want to close with, I think, an insight that um, this, whole, this whole message for me has just really brought full circle. Uh, the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is awkwardly backwards. The world will look at it, and it doesn't make sense. So here's some obvious ones that you know. If you want to be first, you must be what? Last. If you want to be rich, you've got to give your stuff away. Like, how does that work? Give, my, give your stuff away, and then you get rich, right? That, that doesn't make sense. You want vengeance? Yeah? You really want to give it to them? You want to just like take them down? Pray for them and love them. (laughs) Right? It doesn't make any sense, right? The way of the kingdom is regularly backwards because the way of the kingdom is this. Of course it doesn't make sense. Trust me. I'm developing faith in you. And this is what I want from you. So a guy keeps saying, "Do do it backwards. 
and then I'll give you what you really want. You do it the way the world says it, you do it the logical way, uh, I'm sorry, it's not the way it works. Trust me, trust me, God loves faith. Here's what he says, you wanna be filled with more of me? Stop eating. That makes no sense, I'm gonna be honest. But it is a secret that the followers of God for millennia have figured out and that those who are desperate for God have figured out. But it's a discipline that we must confess ourselves as guilty that because we have very little felt need for God at times, we don't feel the urgency to go before him with desperation. And I think what God may wanna do is increase our urgency and our desperation. Uh, Richard Foster wrote this on fasting. If our fasting is not unto God, we have failed. Physical benefits, success in prayer, the enduing with power, spiritual insights, these must never replace God as the center of our fasting. Let me tell you what the win for me is for this message. Um, the last, last three messages have all been about you, God, your personal giving, prayer, fasting. Uh, my hope is that, <clears throat> honestly, none of you come up to me and say, I'm gonna start fasting. I don't really need to know. Here's my, here's my hope. Um, I may not see this, but uh, a handful of you are gonna realize in your desperation that you're gonna start pouring yourself out before God. God's gonna see the faith that it takes. He's gonna watch as you, <clears throat> as you don't tell people you're fasting, you keep these things secret, and he's gonna start moving. Uh, maybe the next five years, 20 or 30 people are gonna get saved because you're gonna have a new desperation for them realizing they will never come to Christ unless God saves them. And you're gonna start praying and fasting with more urgency privately, right? And we'll never know the connection, right? We're gonna get to heaven one day and we're all gonna get together and we'll say, God, what changed from this sermon? Like as a preacher, that's why I want, I want to say, okay, can we just go sermon by sermon by sermon? Tell me like what happened. I'd love to like know. Selfish, yes, I'm still sinful, so go with me, right? And I think God's going to be like, he's going to be like, like, look at all these people. Uh, and he'll highlight like 30 or 40 faces in here. Over the next year, they started fasting and praying and they didn't tell anybody. And I want to show you how moved I was by them and all the ways that I moved in behalf of them. I was so, so privileged that they would trust me enough to abstain from something so essential to go before me and plead with me to move on their behalf or on behalf of other people. I'm gonna get to heaven one day and I'm gonna just be like, oh, that is so, so good. Hey Lord, what did my fast accomplish uh, at Michigan State? Nothing, nothing at all because it was dumb. <laughs> Don't gorge yourself. Uh, but I look forward to that day in eternity future to get back and get an assessment of how God's people respond to something like this. If you want law, I can't give it to you. Uh, some people will fast once a year. Some will fast once or twice a week. Some once a month, once a semester. I don't care. My desire for you, though, is to be regular. And in your moments of desperation, know that this is a means that God has given to us to meet with him uniquely and to have him reward us. Uh, what I want to do right now is transition to communion because communion is this beautiful reminder to us just like fasting, just like prayer, that we are weak and helpless. I don't pray for things that I feel like I can do myself. Like I don't pray in the morning like, God, I need you to help me brush my teeth, right? I pray for things that are out of my control. And just the sheer reality of fasting and of prayer reminds us that there are so many things that are out of our control that we are broken and we are weak and we lack what we need. And communion is this place where God agrees with us where God says, you are weak, you do lack, you are not okay, you do not have what you need, your heart does need to be aligned, you love your kingdom and your will, and this reminds us that we are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory, and one of the greatest methods of transformation is having a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus.